Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Gesso Girls. Today we have a really exciting interview in store for you with my friend Gabby Egnator. Gabby and I met in college at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and Gabby actually introduced me to the art of foundry. And I know what you guys are probably thinking, uh, Julia, you're a painter, what are you doing in the metal shop and in a foundry? Um, well, Gabby is, was really the first person I ever met who was doing this really cool thing called foundry. And so just to give you guys a little bit of background onto what foundry is, if you're like, what is is that word? What is she talking about? Um, foundry is the art of pouring hot, hot metal into a mold to create an object, whether artistic or functional. In Foundry, you can make something as simple as a doorknob, or you can make something as crazy as a giant monument. And we will talk all about that in the different avenues of um, what Foundry is as a career. And Gabby is currently working at the College of Creative Studies in Detroit as the technician in the metal shop and the foundry there. So she has a wealth of knowledge. She's got a lot of technical um, skills and you're going to hear about that. And you're also, we're going to talk about like what her work is and the really cool things she's currently exploring within the foundry space. And also we're going to hear about what it is like to be within the Foundry community. Um, Foundry is really interesting, and I learned this while in school. You cannot run a pour without people. <laughs> you cannot pour hot molten metal by yourself, um, believe it or not. Uh, it's not a good idea. So you need people to help you. And so in, within that, you know, you need you're going to have to develop a community of people who are going to assist you. You do rely on certain equipment to do what you're going to do with your in your art practice. So unlike a lot of us artists like myself who are painters who work alone in an art studio and then maybe go show my work to other people we really talk about the collaborative nature within foundry and metalworking so i hope you guys enjoy this episode if nothing else i hope it teaches you a little bit about a medium you maybe knew nothing about prior to this and also maybe encourages you to get outside your comfort zone like gabby encouraged me when i was in school so without further ado this is our interview with gabby do you love teaching this stuff to people or do you just kind of like to be kind of the person behind the scenes, like helping, making sure the poor goes well, you know? I mean, I love teaching this stuff to people and I think everybody in the casting community does because all you're doing is building your community and even if you are like a self like called expert, you can still learn something from the person next to you. And when I'm teaching this stuff, a lot of what's going on in my mind is like trying to keep Foundry alive, um, given the fact that it is, you know, I, I don't necessarily like to use the word dying art, but it is definitely getting shut down in educational settings and is being underused and undervalued. Why do you think that is? Um, well, I think it's hard to see a direct career from it. And I also think it's not being advertised as much um, in terms of kids coming into schools. Um, and it also is not instant gratification. And it's a lot of labor. So I do think our generation has a lot of art, but I think our generation also craves instant gratification. Yeah. Um, so if you have a process that, like, minimum, if you're skilled, is going to be a few weeks, and typically if you're unskilled, 
will be like three months for one piece, it's challenging. But there must be such gratification when it's completed. How does that feel? Yeah. I mean, it's awesome. I love doing foundry work. Um, I definitely experiment with scale of pieces and change up techniques every time to learn more about the process. Um, and it's every single time it's going to turn out a bit different. So it's like the same thing with ceramics, right? You put your your piece in the kiln and you don't know how it's going to turn out. And like once you close that mold, you don't know how it's going to turn out until you open it. And that's very much like learning how to go with the process and learning how to move with variables through your artwork. What are some projects that you've enjoyed doing in the past or currently working on? I don't know if I have, like, in terms of art pieces, I don't think I have a favorite. In terms of projects, I would definitely go back to when I made my first furnace in undergrad. Um, because it was very much like a leap of faith project. So I was like very invested in foundry. I had taken several classes. I was a teaching assistant for a few of them. And my last year, you know, there was the stress of facilities. Like what if I never get a comparable facility to what I'm used to working with? Um, and I don't know where I was going to go. I didn't have any jobs lined up or any prospects, but I knew I wanted to be able to cast. So I started building a little baby furnace on wheels. And um, to a certain degree, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, because the the way that foundry is often taught is like, just do it, and then we'll figure out how to fix it when it fails. <laughs> yeah. So I was working on this furnace, and I had guidance, but it was still very much like, just do it, and then when you fire it, you're going to have to change things. Like, you're always going to have to adjust to your environment. So I started building this furnace, and I probably finished it a couple months before graduation, and it was just sitting in my, like, second floor apartment in Chicago um, until I ended up coming to Detroit. Um, and I found, you know, the casting community here. And it was a great experience. I told them, hey, I have a furnace. I want to fire it up. And they were like, hell yeah, bring it over. Yeah. Yeah. I have actually a career question because it's so it's funny that you said before that you were like, I didn't see a clear path because from the outside, I actually thought you were probably one of the few people that I felt like had a clearer path. You had an internship, right? At like at Kohler. I mean, by Kohler, we mean like the, you know, the people who do the bathroom stuff, you know, and I never even thought about like, oh, wow, like, yeah, they have to have people who who cast their stuff. And there's not that many people who know how to do it like you. Yeah, so when I was at Kohler, it was, I think, two years before I graduated undergrad, 
And when I was there, I was actually doing uh, the ceramics program. So Kohler has a, what they would term like a show factory, where all their high-end pieces are made. And it's in the town of Kohler, outside of Sheboygan, Wisconsin. And so they have um, showrooms and tours of the grounds um, and like a hotel and a spa. And it's a very, it's a very interesting place to spend time. Um, and it's definitely worth doing the tour if you're ever around. Um, but I was there for a summer internship for three months. Um, and their artist in residence program is broken up into two spaces of the iron casting space and the ceramics slip casting space. So when I was there, I was helping artists make molds for their um, slip casting for the pieces that they were making during their residency. But I was able to have my own little studio space and use the materials and still sneak over to the iron side and visit and see what they were doing over there. Um, but it's all like... The, the iron that the artists are using are the same material as what the bathtubs are made of. And the slip, yeah, and the slip that we're use, we were using is the same slip that all the sinks are made of, that all the bathrooms are made of. And if you wanted to fire anything, you had to talk to the guy who is loading the kiln and sneak your pieces between the sinks as okay. they were being moved into the kiln. That's so funny. Wow. That's yeah, awesome. It was, That's cool. it was an amazing experience. Yeah. Yeah. I have, so I guess I have another question and follow up question for that. So speaking of, you need to slip your piece of art between the sinks. It's like how, Currently, are do you have more freedom in your job at the College of Creative Stu for Creative Studies in Detroit? Like, can you can you make your own work, or are you primarily just helping other people make work? So when I'm there, it's a good chunk of helping people and doing maintenance. But I'm definitely able to get my own work done. I'm also able to stay, you know, after hours or come in on the weekends, like I have access to those facilities. And I also, you know, have access to the like, amazing, knowledgeable people there. So if I wanted to try something new, you know, I'm still in an academic institution, I can turn to my friend or coworker and be like, Hey, have you ever done this before? And then we can work through it. And it's a learning experience that like enriches my job, you mm -hmm. know, definitely. And then so in terms of that, too, so are you currently working on any particular pieces for a show or um, how have you, yeah, or do you have any like a body of work you're currently, you're currently working on? Yeah, so my recent body of work has been based on monuments and memorials and landmarks. So the way I've been describing it is that I uh, was raised in a Jewish culture and so the, memor the majority of memorials I was exposed to were like the very stark, gridded, unnamed block aesthetic of a memorial. 
And I'm looking at that compared to the history of American monuments. Mm -hmm. um, because when we think about historical monuments or older monuments, you know, you think of like a bronze man on a bronze horse, like up in the air. Mm -hmm. um, and that has now become a very like cringy aesthetic because all it is mm. is like reminds you of oligarchies and Europe taking on like Greco-Roman aesthetics um, and now that our society has like viewed that as aesthetically belonging to oligarchies and monarchies we've moved to a very stark aesthetic um, and I'm starting to look at how those two meet and why we even make memorials in the first place um and i've mm -hmm. been i've been doing a lot of research on it and i was current oh i'm not gonna remember the name but i was <laughs> reading a book by the guy who was on the um jury for the making of the 9-11 memorial and he brought up a lot of good questions about, like, if there is an immeasurable loss that we can never physically represent, why would we try and represent it in the first place? Yeah. Because yeah. would that not border on being dismissive? Interesting. Um, yeah. But as humans, we still want those objects to have a healing space. But how can those objects represent all those people and how can those objects still create a healing space for so many individual people who have so many different opinions about this one experience yeah that's really fascinating because i think yes. like you said before actually i think it's a very the whole monument thing is a very interesting topic obviously because right now people are trying to like you know take down monuments and take down very you relevant. know very relevant um and most of those that are being you know taken down currently just represent like one individual you know or or, or so, uh, seemingly so it's like you know one one kind of experience of this one person and yeah we are the, the era we're in is more when we do make monuments it has to do with some kind of event that's happened um are you interested in, like, being a monument maker? Like, you know, or, or are you kind of making work that comments on monuments, if, if that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, the question makes sense, and I definitely border on both of them, right? Mm -hmm. Because I'm in the casting community, yeah. and the majority of those pieces that are getting taken down are, like, bronze cast items. Um, and I'm in you know, iron casting communities and metal casting communities that are having the discussion of how much does the responsibility lie on the caster. If you're an art foundry and have this amazing commission, is it your responsibility to do the research on whose likeliness you're making or who you're glorifying before you say yes to the commission? So what, where do you lie in that argument? Like, do you think that it is your responsibility or, or the caster's responsibility? Um, I'm not sure. It was only, I feel, brought up by my peers recently due to, you know, all of the pieces um, 
being taken down. And there is already a history of melting down uh, statues and melting down specifically guns have been a big thing. So melting down guns for repurposing in the art world. So I definitely think casters should have a role in like melting down statues that across the board we agree are not okay. Um, But in terms of doing research on their own commissions, I don't know. I think that's a personal choice. If it was me, I would do the research. I mean, I don't know how much research I would do, but I feel like there's definite responsibility in being like, okay, where is this going? Like, why is it there? And it's not that you necessarily have to agree with it, but I think if it's egregious, I personally wouldn't do it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. If you were to take down a, not you personally, but if someone was to take down a monument and melt it down and repurpose it, is it a one-to-one ratio? I'm just thinking in an artistic way. Could you take something that maybe is controversial now and create it into a new piece of work? Um, Almost like taking the old views and making it a new view in a brighter light? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I I think that's something you know, uh, that the government should be doing more. Um, but I, I think what the trend has been is if a city doesn't like a monument, it just gets put in storage. Um, and, and then the famous photo that was going around a few months ago of somebody pushing that big bronze statue into the river. Um, Mm. and it's like, in my mind, I'm like, that's a, that's a lot of bronze. You could do a lot of like art things with that. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Gotta go find it. Yeah. Yeah. But then that's also saying that the cities or whatever government entity has to pay to have it repurposed, which would be a whole another bureaucratic nightmare. Cause you're like, I have the bronze material, which cuts down the cost, but they still have to chop it up, melt it, make the molds, decide the new monument, and then create mm-hmm. it. Do you ever do you ever have a role in um, ideating what a monument is, or has anyone come to you with a project saying, "I'd like to create something that um, influences people or whatnot"? Uh, have you ever ha- been on that side? No. I am definitely not at the stage in my career where I'm getting to do those things. Um, I do have, like, peers and friends just starting to get into the public art sphere. Um, and it's it's a very strange world. It's very bureaucratic. Yeah. Um, and your your image really rarely gets realized because it's having 20 other people's opinions on it. So it's, it's different... Fair. Technically, it is a commission, but I'd argue that it's different than a commission because you are meeting so many sets of rules um, okay. that are is not necessarily your creation. But there are there are a few iconic, you know, memorials and monuments that very much do reflect the artist's um, opinions. But I I would argue that that's rare. Do you have a favorite or is there someone that you have followed um, that's on that same career path? Um, I don't know of anybody specifically who I would identify with at the beginning 
of a public art career path, but the piece that I often think about is um, the Maya Lin Memorial. Um, I believe the, the Vietnam Veteran Memorial is the Vietnam War Memorial is the official name for it. Um, but that is the piece that aesthetically created the change in American memorials. So whenever you bring up this topic, you know, Maya Lin is the, the first person that they bring up. And I believe she was like very, very young when she came up with the idea um, and then has influenced all of, you know, large scale monuments for her entire career. That's really, that's amazing that she was able to make, she kind of was like the, the starter of that whole shift in the mood and yeah. like how, the aesthetic that's that's pretty incredible i didn't realize it was kind of like one monument or i mean it's not probably just one but like there was there's kind of is like a bit of a a time marker of like yeah it was that one that really changed everything yeah so um i can just restate it that uh maya lynn was 21 years old when she created well when she designed the vietnam Jeez. veteran memorial wow what so I? she like that is why this, like, moment and this memorial and this person has become so iconic. Um, and because I don't, it's, as far as I know, that's never been done before. And it and hasn't really been done since then. Um, so she is the, definitely someone to look up to. That's cool. That is really cool. I know you said you're potentially interested in grad school. Is that the next step for you? Or what do you see as the next step in your career? Um, so right now I have the technician position at CCS and it is an amazing gig. Um, I am looking into grad schools, but I'm accepting that it may take me a few years to find the one that I want. Um, since I have the luxury of, like, I have a good job, I have a good setup, I'm going to be picky about this, um, and as I'm, like, starting my journey, I'm realizing, like, yes, I do know what I want, but I don't know what school is going to be able to best fit me, um, and I don't know how they're going to feel about my work, um, so until I get to the point of, you know, hearing their answers, I'm already expecting that I'm going to have to do another round of applications next year. Okay. I don't know if you can generalize this maybe, but what are kind of the career paths for somebody like yourself, like in Foundry? So it's like, you just mentioned like the whole technical route. Um, and then obviously you have, you know, an artistic route, which you, you're kind of on. And or is there a different, or any other route you can go? And like, what do they look, what do they each look like? Yeah, so if you're doing art foundry work, you can, you know, set up a commission shop. So I know a few people that solely do bronze commission work and aluminum commission work for either artists or people wanting something special for their house. Um, so you can do the setup shop route. You can do the teaching route or 
the technician route, which I'm currently at right now. And then if you aren't doing art-based stuff, like, you can work at a larger foundry. You can go into metallurgy. You can go into furnace building. Um, all sorts of making more like different routes. Making more like usable objects, you know, functional objects and whatnot. Yeah. yeah. So going back to Kohler, you know, they in- employ like I don't. I don't even know how many people, but I'm sure a good of amount that run their foundry that do all the programming for making patterns for their pieces, for testing the metal every day, for checking on the furnace mm-hmm. every day, for all sorts of different niche ac- aspects of what it takes to run a large-scale foundry. Yeah. So what advice would you give to somebody who, like, if you could go back and talk to your younger self and be like, okay, this is what you need to do to kind of get onto this path? Or, like, what kind of advice would you give somebody who might be interested in exploring this as a career? Um, in terms of advice to, to myself, it would definitely just to push past the intimidation. Um... Mm-hmm. Because I know you brought up earlier that you felt, like, intimidated by the foundry world a bit. And I think everybody does when they first start, especially if they're more petite or they identify as a woman. Um, mm-hmm. It's very hard to push past the intimidation and feel like this is a space that you can inhabit. Um, so feeling more comfortable with pushing is, I mean, you, it's something I'm still working on now. Do you see more women uh, joining this industry? I don't know. Possibly marginally. <laughs> I think I think I've purposefully looked for spaces that have more women in it, and I actively, like, recruit or support women in those spaces. Mm-hmm. Um so I don't think I could speak to the situation as a whole, but I know that you can actively seek out those spaces or create those spaces. It's good to know that they do exist. You just have to look. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely felt that, definitely. Like, like you just said before, like I 100% felt that when I got into the foundry, but it's interesting, like you just said, like once... Once I got in, when I took the class, other friends of mine, like, girlfriends of mine were like, oh, that sounds really cool. Like, maybe, maybe I'll do it too. And I think in a weird way, not not that I was like, kind of like how you were for me. It's like, oh, I saw you doing blacksmithing. And I was like, that's cool. Like, maybe I could do that too. It's kind of like a leading by example thing, for sure. Yeah, it's leading by example, but also like being like, hey, this this can be a type of safe space. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm glad that you've been able to, I mean, do you think that it's a little bit, do you think there was, we just talked about there are kind of different routes to go within the industry. Do you think maybe the creative aspect is a bit more like welcoming to women versus like maybe if you go more like the functional object kind of technical route, is that kind of more male dominant? I'm not sure. I would argue that like I do know people who who are women in the foundry world on both sides. Um, 
and I think both present their own hardships. I would argue that on the art side of things, you can um, control your community a bit more, and Mm -hmm. the art world in general is a tad bit more accepting. But that, you know, that doesn't exclude, like, what if there's, like, an all-women foundry shop set up? You know, that would be awesome. Um, Is there one out there? Who knows? Hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) I would would like to believe that there is. Um, I mean, I, uh, I wouldn't say recently. It was, like, Just before the pandemic, um, my friend Jam in Peoria did an all-women's iron pour, and I had, like, I'd never participated in an all-women's iron pour. I'd seen one that I wasn't able to participate because I was busy, but it was an amazing experience. Like, it was, it was just very community-centered and communication-based, and I, like, left it feeling awesome. Because sometimes I leave a pour, and I'm like, wow, that guy was just, like, being an absolute dick, you know? (laughs) And then I need to be, like, reframe my mood and be like, hey, it was a good pour. We're just gonna ignore that, like, these people were, like, not actively trying to enjoy it. But... In that, like, community female space, there was, like, to me, not even, like, a shred of negativity or aggression. It was, it was, like, just an awesome experience. I I do have one other question about, um, kind of the commission process. So, we talked about in our last episode about selling art and pricing it, and I'm just curious, because obviously different metals are, like, can be you know, very much vary in price. Um, how do you go about pricing your art <laughs> out of curiosity? Cause I know how we do it in painting, but like, how do you, do you factor in materials and then do you factor in your time or yeah. How do you, how do you go about that? Yeah. So for pricing, there's a few different ways to do it. Um, I've mostly, if I'm doing commissions, it's mostly fabrication pieces, less so foundry pieces. Um, But I factor in materials, and that's also factoring, like, whatever excess materials I need to practice a bend in the piece. Um, So you always factor in for extra materials if mistakes are made. And then the big thing is shop fees, right? Because it takes a lot to run a shop, not just electricity, but if you're using a MIG welder, the wire costs money, the argon gas costs money, uh, the electricity is, you know, bumped up so much more, your exhaust system, there's so much that goes into running a shop. So, you know, shop fees can be like $100 a day, and that's low um, for what you're putting on your invoice. So you have your materials, you have your shop fee, then you have your labor. Um, and this is a really skilled labor, you know, like if you're just welding, welders get up to, you know, 40, 45 an hour. So you can price yourself 
at like I I would typically price myself at like 25 an hour but I'm also still like you know new um <laughs> and then also I know people who take that total and do a 30% bump because something is going yeah. to go wrong that you don't anticipate. If you're doing a commission, you're like remaking the wheel because they could want some crazy curve out of a material you've never touched before. And you're going to be like, wow, this is going to be a shit show and take two days longer than I thought it was going to take. Um, and stuff like that happens like every single time. So I know people that either do like take a 10% bump or do a 30% bump. Um, and then if you are somebody who actually has a reputation, you know, people tack on even more than that. But fabrication work and specifically foundry work costs way more than people think it does. I'm sure. No, I, I remember. Oh, absolutely. I remember even, so we had to, when we do these pours, even in, in college, like we didn't, the material was not free. Like we had to, granted, you could kind of like reuse it. You could melt an old piece you did and, you know, use it again. But it was expensive. Like it, when you would have make, you had to be very cognizant of like, oh, I'm making this giant piece. Like it's going to cost me a hundred dollars to pour it <laughs> in bronze or whatever. Um, so I, I was, I was imagining, I was like, wow, yeah, it, it, I'm sure it gets pretty pricey. Yeah, I have a a buddy who runs a foundry near Saugatuck, and I think he says, like, minimum pricing is, like, 1500 per square foot if it's a cast item. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. I mean, it makes sense to me, knowing what goes into it, but, man. Yeah, yeah. and that's, like, on the cheap end of things. If you yeah. go to... <laughs> like, more than a one-man show type of art foundry, mm -hmm. it's, like, gets wild. You could, like, want, like, a small little statue for your coffee table, and it could be six grand easy. Wow. <laughs> That's nuts. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm trying, part of me is kind of like, so who, like, who buys that? I mean, obviously, like, really rich people, but, like, like, or, yeah, or, or, yeah. or, or like, company, like, companies, you know, like, will do it, or... Who are your general clients? Um, for me, I only did uh, commissions for other artists. Um, but for my friends who do fabrication and commissions um, for their, you know, either part-time gig or full-time gig, they all know one or two rich people each. Okay. They all, like, each have their own <laughs> like person that. who has, like, a huge house that always needs some sort of restoration. And so then they go to this same person and they're like, hey, I want a bronze table or, hey, can you redo this railing on this side of the house, you know? So it's just small jobs that they always come back to the same person. Interesting. Okay. And I'm sure if you ever got, like, hooked up with, like, an, like an architect, you know, like, or somebody some other general contractor or something who, you know, frequently needs metal work done, you probably would start to get consistent gigs that way, maybe? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you wanted to do just, like, non-art-based right. welding, 
there's like so many jobs for you, especially if you have any sort of background in it. Like you don't necessarily need certificates. That's only if you're doing very specific jobs. But if you took a few community college classes, you could get a lot of like railing gigs, balcony gigs, like it's very it's very easy to pick those things up if you create a community for it awesome that's cool I, I I'm just I'm I'm so fascinated by this entire conversation I feel like I've learned so much in the <laughs> <Yeah>. past hour <laughs> um, but it, so anyway do you have any upcoming projects that you're working on or um or pieces of art that you're you know like you said before it takes a while for one thing to be created yeah I'm slowly working on a project of like toy monuments so I've been learning how to uh, design things on Fusion 360 and render items and 3D printing them out and then casting them in aluminum so the eventual end goal for the project is that I'm gonna have like 50 building blocks of monuments and display them as like in like a very like sand pit form of like all together in a box and the audience gets to interact with them and they get to choose if they want to build a monument out of those pieces or take down the monument of the previous person oh cool that's, like, the big interactive project I'm working towards. Um, and then I'm slowly... I don't know if you remember her, but Rosabelle from yeah. undergrad. Yes, I do know her. I follow yeah. her. I actually was thinking about asking if she wanted to be on the podcast as well. Oh, you <laughs> should, you she's should really, absolutely she's, she's super cool. Yeah. So you're working yeah. with her? Yeah. Yeah. So we um, both have the Jewish background and make Jewish art. So we're starting to put together packets to shop out to galleries for us to do a show together because our, our work just makes a lot of sense, sense together. Yeah. And we've been trying. Yeah, we've been trying to make this happen for, I don't know, like two years now because we almost had a show and then it fell through so now we're we're trying to reach out to different galleries and and hopefully we can pull something together i don't know uh when exactly given our current climate but yeah yeah exactly we'll see how it turns out <laughs> that's actually another question i have because I, I meant to ask this earlier but how has covid affected the whole you know, boundary, because I mean, so much of it, as we've discussed throughout this episode, like, is a team thing. (laughs) And you have to be kind of, you have to be close to each other. You can't be six feet apart, you know? Yeah. Um, so since we're, it's not an specifically iron facility, you can keep a bit, a bit more distance with the gas furnace, because you're mostly on other sides of the shank holding the crucible and I guess the skimmer has to get close but this semester we don't have any classes in the foundry um, because typically our foundry gets the most use from the continuing education program and they canceled it for this semester Um, and our credit class usually runs in the winter so we'll see what happens um i mean i work at a college institution and they've definitely been trying to figure out the 
post-pandemic situation the best they can, mm-hmm. but there's definitely been a lull in the amount of people coming in um, and and doing their work just because, you know, everybody is hesitant. Yeah, makes sense. And then in terms of, like, galleries, I mean, I we've talked about this before on the podcast, too. We feel like galleries have also been hit, like, extremely hard yeah. during this. I mean, people aren't congregating and, like, you know... I think also just in general, correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like galleries for a while now have kind of been, like, dissipating. I just feel like so many people buy work online now. I don't know. Do you, how, what are your, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> I could be wrong. Um, I, I do feel like, uh, galleries are becoming less and less, and I don't, I mean, it may be because it's going online, but I also think it may be, it's just an outdated system. I think so. It's yeah. like, an outdated, unfair, hierarchical system. Yeah, yeah. Um, that uh, people are realizing, hey, I can be an artist without gallery representation. And have, not um, having to give fifty percent of my my piece to absurd. them. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah, the, uh, the yes. So unless they are like a thriving gallery that truly has an amazing list of people who buys from them it might not be worth it to a lot of people. And to be honest, like, the few people I I do know who've, who've had gallery representation for, like, a year or two, like, got, like, close to what I'd call scammed by it. Like, you know, you give them their piece and then they, you know, drag their feet about paying you or, like, are like, oh, I forgot I still had this piece, you know. It... If you do want to be represented by a gallery, it, like, has to be one that you trust, Uh, not just somebody that will take you and you're like, oh, I feel like this is what I should be doing because majority of the time they're going to want 50%. They might not let you show with anywhere else and they might not let you make your own sales. Yep. That that so, that is just insane. I don't think a lot of people understand that. Like, yeah, you can become be, you can become really beholden. Everyone, because I get questions all the time. Like, Come oh, theirs. They oh, are you. you in any? Are you in any galleries? And I'm like, no. And I'm happy about it because they also can like say, for example, if you decide you want to have a sale on your art, like I want to do like a spring clean out of my studio, um, you have to like get that approved with them because yeah. they're gonna be upset if like you're selling work cheaper because people are gonna want to buy from you directly then you know and then they don't get the money and it sounds like a a nightmare to me actually yeah yeah and I think again that's speaking about old school galleries I do think there are uh, specifically in Detroit there are a lot of younger galleries here that do function as galleries but respect the artist much more yeah um so I there's a play in there of if it's beneficial or not and you really might not know unless you're with them for a year and you're like oh I feel like this like hasn't helped my sales or I feel like this is limiting and so and and I think it depends on the type of work you're making because I think galleries would want you know like a, a substantial amount of work and if you're only making like for me if I'm only making one or two big things a year then it doesn't necessarily lend itself to a gallery um unless I'm making something you know 
I you think typically show. the rule yeah. is, yeah, yeah, unless like, you know, I rarely make things that would be worth between 500 and 1000 which is typically the buying range that people want to buy. So it's it's not saleable in that way, and I view my own stuff as like, I would rather make money from teaching workshops um, than you know trying to sell off yeah and that makes sense I think we talk about this a lot um on here just because a it's a question we get all the time about selling work and it's interesting because I do think that there are certain mediums that don't lend themselves as well to like selling to like 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 a consumer culture you know um and there's other, and in that case, it's like, yeah, you kind of do have to rely on the other aspects of what you do, which is a, you, what you do is a craft, you know, it's like a total, like a, a skill set that most people don't have. So mm-hmm. you can totally sell that, you know, like your, your skills, like you just said. Yeah, definitely. And I, and that took me a while to realize, cause I also had to see other artists do it first. Um, that like, it, it's not like not all artists need to sell two to three pieces per month you know like you have a residency fund you for a few months you get a big grant for a project you do one to two big projects a year you're doing workshops and lectures in between there's like so many ways to function as an artist without being beholden to like oh i need someone to specifically buy my work yeah yeah and 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 that's okay like both both methods like are fine like no no method is better than the other I think when I was fresh out of art school I was like seeing all my friends who got who got grants or got in residencies and I was like oh I'm I'm not doing that is something wrong with me that I'm not doing that and then or I saw other artists who were selling paintings like you know every day and I'm like okay how do I like fit into this um equation here like what's the formula for me Yeah, and I think it's, like, such an individual choice, but I also think it goes back and forth. Yeah. Like, I could, for a year, be like, hey, I want to sell small-scale castings for a year or two and sell a few of those a month. It, like, it can go back and forth, and it can be a blend of both for however long you choose to be an artist. Because, like, the way I see it is, like, I was just doing the residency circuit for a year, and then now I'm doing the technician thing for, I guess, like a year and a half now, full time. Um, And then I'm sure uh, after grad school, I'm going to go back to the residency circuit and then I'm going to try this. And it's, it's always going to change and, and evolve. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, Well, thank you so much for coming on here because like I just, I said before, I feel like I've learned so much (laughs) in this past hour about like, I don't know, it's just so, it's cool to hear about different types of art and, Mm -hmm. like, how it works in the real world. (laughs) You know, like, it's one thing when we met in school and we're kind of, like, in that bubble. Yeah, and I think what's fascinating is, sorry, is uh, that just opening people's minds to the new, like, creativity and art is not just, I think it's easy for people to bucket it as you're either a painter or a designer or, like your field doesn't get the credit and attention it deserves. Um, it's an extreme skill set and knowledge um, in order to perform 
those tasks. And yeah. we really appreciate having you on this morning. Yeah. Awesome. And then also where can our listeners like follow you, see your work, like see what you have, your any of your upcoming projects that you have going on? Yeah. So my Instagram is Gabby Finn and my website is gabrielleegnator.com. So most of my finished work is up on my website and, uh, most of my iron pours and travel is via Instagram. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. I had a good time. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, if you could leave us a review or let us know what you learned or what you liked about this episode on Instagram or in, in a review, that'd be fantastic. And we'll be back on next week.